Green Bay, October 18, 1841. Canadian-American missionary Eliezer Williams is summoned to the steamship Columbus on Lake Michigan. While on the ship, Williams has a personal meeting with his requester, a French royal, who tells Williams information that could change the course of world history. Due to past trauma, Williams reports to have no memory of his life prior to age 13, when he is mysteriously adopted by Canadian natives. The French royal on board, the Prince de Genvie, explains to Williams that his real family was executed when he was a child, and proceeds to tell him his true and authentic identity. King Louis XVII of France. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode 36 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Women, along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, my friend? I like the energy. The energy. I'm it, great. It, it's 65 degrees on it, a oh February God. afternoon. Yeah. The sun is shining. Can't get it's better than this just winter. It's warm we and beautiful. Winter, and, right? and then our personalities, what they add to that. The sun is double shining, man. It <laughs> is like the sun Double shining. shining. That's the word we use face. forever. <laughs> There's something shining down on us. <laughs> Maybe it's sun. Whatever it is. We are ready to go today. I do want to start off today by talking about a story that is becoming national for unfortunate reasons. There's a big story in the area here. This is from the Daily Beast. Mother arrested as desperate family searches for missing three-year-old Elijah Vu. This is about a a three-year-old little boy that is missing from Two Rivers. He's been missing for since Tuesday, I believe. So we're on five or six days now of missing. It says, quote, the mother of a three-year-old boy who went missing Tuesday morning has been arrested in connection with the disappearance, police said. Katrina Bauer, 31, was arrested alongside a man identified as Jesse Vang on child neglect charges after Elijah Vu vanished earlier this week. Bauer and Vang, described as the boy's caretaker, are being held on $15,000 and $20,000 cash bail, respectively, and barred from contacting each other 
or anyone under 18 if bail is posted. Neighbors, friends, and family continue to search for the missing boy. He was last seen around 8 a.m. on Tuesday in Two Rivers and was sent there by his mother to stay with Vang away from their hometown of Wisconsin Dells. Bauer was not in Two Rivers when her son disappeared. An Amber Alert was issued Tuesday afternoon when he was reported missing. The Two Rivers Police Force was coordinating efforts with the FBI, the Wisconsin Department of Criminal Investigations, and the nonprofit A Child is Missing and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. According to Facebook, the search effort was expanded to the nearby city of Manitowoc, just south of Two Rivers on the coast of Lake Michigan. Police confirmed the search had expanded to surrounding communities near Two Rivers, as well as Vu's hometown of Wisconsin Dells. Do they have any idea who the suspect Like, it's a lot of times it's somebody they know, like an ex-husband or wife or something. You know? I'm pretty sure, and this is pure speculation, I don't know a lot of information more than anybody else, but I'm pretty sure they have the mother and the caretaker. Um, in custody. In Well, they're in custody based due to neglect charges oh, but so there's a reason they put them in custody so quickly i think they're i think they're targeting on them it also says on saturday police thanked the public for assisting in the search but said elijah had still not been found minor warned against fake tips and scams sent in relation to the search there's also some video going around facebook right now uh i know it was there yesterday and i know it was there today of it's a video of somebody like pulling up a kid out of the lake or something which looks like a body that's fake so there are what the there f- are pieces what of shit the out f there is wrong with people? that put why, why fake you, videos like this out. What, what do you stand to gain internet? from that? that? Oh God, it's disgusting. But it's I mean, how old was the kid again? He was three. So I mean, the he kid's is, not getting away on his own. So somebody somebody kidnapped him, took him, and they think it's mom. Well, they they think mom might know more than oh. she's saying. It says Elijah has still not been located. We are aware of at least one fake video circulating social media that shows the recovery of a minor by officers. Who fakes this shit? Right. I mean, what's wrong with you? Again, beware of scams seeking your money and personal information, but also know those now looking to take advantage of this unfortunate situation. Elijah Vu is of mixed race and Hmong ethnicity with dark blonde hair and brown eyes. He's about three feet tall and has a birthmark on his left knee. He was last seeing... Wearing gray pants, a dark-colored long-sleeve shirt, and a pair of red and green dinosaur slip-on shoes. He so made, he's, he's three and wearing dinosaur slip-on shoes. He's not moving around on his own. Somebody picked him up and took, abducted him. Now, there are. Or, it, I mean, along something along those lines. And it doesn't say this in this article here, but there, there have been sightings of police searching landfills. Uh, and the police have come out and said, no, we're just, you know... We're, covering don't, all don't read too much into that but we're just, just looking we're just everywhere trying leaving, to find a lead leaving no stone unturched but i do have uh, why do they let that leak out even well i do have out? a source that there is a reason they're looking in landfills right now so i don't you know this is like we elaborate then it's not going to have uh a positive it's ending. not going to have a, 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 a good ending hopefully hopefully you know we're wrong we don't know a whole well, lot most of the time these stories don't but but to post videos that are just false is just get a hobby do something better with your time. You, you're, you're not a productive human being if you're doing that crap. And the attention you gain from that, who wants that? There's something wrong with you if you do. Okay, I'm off my pedestal now, but that's ridiculous. So it's a story that we're obviously going to be following that's only you know an hour from where we are right here. And it's becoming a pretty well-known national story, which it should be. You know, Everybody around, everybody should be uh, on their toes helping to look for little 
Elijah Vu, who's three years old and obviously cannot help himself. So um, we'll continue following that for everybody here. Building on that, there's a, there's another story in the news here that, that kind of uh, goes with the theme of missing children, Yay. which is a, such a positive you know thing to talk about here. But again, these, these need... These need to be talked about, and this one is... And this is a Dark Twisted podcast, so we have to talk about I this stuff. So. And this one's from a long time ago, and this is, quote, new efforts made to solve the biggest mystery in Juneau County history. That rhymed. And this says, investigators are using new methods to solve what is arguably the biggest unsolved mystery in Juneau County. It surrounds the disappearance of four-year-old Ricky Jean Bryant, who went missing from her home in rural Juneau County in 1949. Detective Sean Goyette with the Juneau County Sheriff's Office was assigned the case in 2009. I'm just looking for the right piece of the puzzle to try to put it together, he said. Goyette said a fire broke out on December 19th, 1949, at a farm home about three miles northeast of Mauston. The home was being rented by the Bryants, a family of six. There were other siblings that are a little older that do recall that Ricky Jean was out of the structure. But she's never been found after the fire, and there's never been any remains of her found. So they don't believe she was killed in the fire. So, obviously a mystery. Newspaper clippings from 1949 show Ricky Jean died inside the home. However, human remains were never found. Witnesses then shared a key detail leading investigators to believe Ricky Jean may have been taken. They recall that a lady in a nice car and a dress that was really nice showed up... (laughs) This is somebody saying this. They recall that a lady in a nice car and a dress that was really nice. Really nice. Showed up and sent Ricky Jean's brother to another residence to get help. When he returned, the lady in the nice car and Ricky Jean were gone. Sounds like a 80s, a bad 80s song. Sorry. Ricky Jean? Ricky Jean is not in the house. She's dressed really well, but she might have taken the kid. After officials didn't find human remains inside the home and Ricky Jean wasn't located, another theory was formed. There was information that possibly there was a connection to Minnesota. The information pointed to Ricky Jean's mother. Ricky Jean's mom, once a year, would disappear at some point, and they believed that she was going to Minnesota, possibly, to visit Ricky Jean. This lady in the nice dress and the nice car, we don't know who that was. I just love that description every time. Apparently there weren't many nice cars and nice dresses in Juneau County. Uh, I mean, you can't have a nice dress and a nice car. You stand out. So this Minnesota connection, we don't know who to follow up with or where to go. And the age of the case makes solving it difficult. A lot of people that may have information, unfortunately, aren't alive anymore. So it's an interesting story. You know, there's a house fire. Everybody gets out, but they're missing the youngest child, right? And they don't find her inside. And there's rumors and innuendo that the mother smuggled her out somewhere to Minnesota, and she leaves once a year to go visit her. Says so Goyette said there was speculation that Ricky Jean may have not been biologically related to her siblings, and that could have been why she was taken. However, he said they have not been able to confirm or deny so good for them. I mean, this is 1949, right? This is 75 years ago. And they're still, they do not classify this as a cold case. They still work on it. And they're still searching for this woman who may very much be alive. The cause of the fire was never determined. Ricky Jean would be about 78 years old today. Her parents and two of her siblings have died. So certainly we'll keep an eye out on the new methods that, uh, which obviously is going to be DNA. 
with all the other things that go on and the fact that they're still willing to do the research and the homework on these other it's just a testament to the how hard these people work no question about it and then one final topic we'll talk about today it's one of my patented lists man a we're list. going with the list again and this one caught this one it just sounds so wispy it says the 10 most mystical and mysterious places in Wisconsin. Are there nice dresses and nice cars in You know there is. They're mystical <laughs> yeah. and mysterious. And this is from Feb- <laughs> February 6th, so just a couple weeks ago. The 10 most mystical and mysterious places in Wisconsin. It says Wisconsin is known for its famous breweries and award-winning cheese. But the Badger State also has plenty to offer those seeking spooky sights and extraordinary feats of nature. We have bibbed overalls, too. They're, they're depriving us of some of the things we take credit for. It doesn't trump the cheese, man. Well, that's true. From haunt- and beer. From haunted bridges to a picturesque nature preserve that's said to be watched over by gnomes and fairies, Wisconsin is home to a slew of mysterious and mystical places. The first one they have here <laughs> is one that we've talked about ad nauseum sometimes, I feel. The Fister Hotel. And I'm, I'm starting to think that the Fister is like paying these people off. Yeah. I mean, it's... Okay, it's got a reputation of some of the rooms are haunted. We got it. And, I mean, okay. none of them, none of the stories are just overly impressive or dramatic. Yeah, a couple so, of baseball yeah. players got scared. So but because famous people go there, that's why. A luxury hotel that regularly hosts celebrities and other famous faces might seem out of place on a list of spine-tingling spots, but among the Fisher Hotel's grand chandeliers and Victorian art... A ghost is rumored to wander. In addition to hosting celebrities and politicians, the Fister is usually the hotel of choice for baseball teams. When they come to town to play the Milwaukee Brewers, many players have experienced paranormal events during their stays. And we insert joke every time. time. (laughs) So the Fister Hotel, everyone, if you haven't heard, is purportedly haunted. Next one, Siren Bridge in Siren. Journey across Siren Bridge and you might hear a chill-inducing message from someone who met their demise there decades ago. In March 1985, Richard and Rose Kringle and their young daughter, Joe D, hit a patch of black ice while driving across Siren Bridge. All three family members drowned when their car went through a guardrail and landed upside down in the swampy water below. Since the crash, many locals who drive over the bridge say their radio will cut out and they'll hear a young girl yelling, help me, mommy, I can't get out. While some stories we highlight in this post are strictly urban legend, this fatal accident did, in fact, happen, and the Kringle family is buried just a few minutes' drive from the bridge. Next one, Bloody Bride Bridge, Stevens Point. Our next creepy tale also takes place on a bridge. The story of Bloody Bride Bridge, officially named Highway 66 Bridge, involves a young woman who was killed in a car accident on the bridge on her wedding night. Following the deadly accident, people have reported seeing a woman in a bloody wedding dress standing on the bridge or sitting in the backseat of passing cars. The late newlywed tends to make her appearances at night, especially during the winter months. As chilling as this tale is, there isn't any evidence to confirm it's more than just an urban legend. The Stevens Point Police Department has no record of the accident. And that is very similar to a lot of bloody woman in a white dress walking down the street kind of stuff throughout the country right many of these we'll we'll get further into in other episodes yeah those legends live on everywhere else next one here boy scout lane stevens point boy scout lane an isolated dead end road that runs through the woods in stevens point is said to be named after a troop of boy scouts that were murdered there while on a camping trip in the 1960s i think we just talked about this one a couple 
episodes ago. Some say the boys were killed by their troop master. Others blame the bus, the bus driver. In another popular version of the tale, the boys vanished one by one throughout the night. Another spin on the story is that the children perished in a fire that started when someone accidentally dropped a lantern. That's that's a lot of variations on right. There's a lot of different story. versions, and then and the paranormal activity that uh, results as we'll we'll get into that in a few episodes talking so, about those kind of stories. There's no historical record of the murders, but that doesn't stop spooky stories from surfacing. Visitors claim the road is haunted by the late Boy Scouts. There have been reports of childlike handprints appearing on cars, sounds of branches breaking beneath invisible footsteps, and flickers of the boys' lanterns seen through the trees like any of these legend stories that's what it's kind of all about whether it's based on anything reality or not it's about the gossip mill and people just spreading rumors but it's part of the history so it's kind of intriguing and some people believe it some people don't but it's fun to talk about here's one that we did an entire episode on already the lake michigan triangle that was that was one of my favorite episodes you've probably heard of the of the bermuda triangle but did you know lake michigan has its own version of this mysterious spot well if you listen to badger bazaar you do the area in lake michigan is the site of countless shipwrecks plane crashes and mysterious disappearances in 1891 sailors aboard the thomas hume started their journey from muskegon michigan but never reached their destination search efforts produced nothing until century later in 2006 when the ship was discovered at the bottom of the lake in near perfect condition. In 1912, the Rouse Simmons, a vessel transporting Christmas trees from Michigan to Chicago, set sail from a port in Thompson but never arrived in the Windy City. Christmas trees started washing up on shore about a year after the accident and the ship wasn't found until decades later. Then there's the Northwest Flight 2501, which disappeared en route to Seattle from New York in June 1950. The plane's radar went dark somewhere over Lake Michigan, and the captain and crew were never heard from again. Remains of those aboard washed ashore in South Haven, Michigan, but the plane was never found. That's episode 19. Episode 19 on Lake Michigan Triangle. We cover a lot about the triangle and all the uh, mysterious stories. Including the Christmas tree boat. That was that was a big part of it. That was one of my favorite episodes. We, we talk about a lot of different shipwrecks, uh, UFOs, plane wrecks. I mean, it's... Some of, most of them are easily explained by just weather and other phenomena that are part of our earth and it's, you know, gravitational pull and all that. It's still a very interesting episode and why the things only happen in this particular area. It's, it's a, it's a peculiar thing. So it's, it's worth a listen. Next one on here, Devil's Punch Bowl Preserve. The Devil's Punch Bowl Preserve is a natural wonder brimming with beauty. This geologic gem features a rock formation that's more than 500 million years old. Devil's Punch Bowl is a result of glaciers that retreated out of the area, forming wide open space surrounded by 30-foot cliffs, a waterfall, and an underground spring. The preserve is also rumored to be the home of trolls, gnomes, and fairies that look down on visitors as they descend the staircase to explore the riverbed. Cave of the Mounds is the next one. I've been there. The Brigham you family. You always say that. It's me this time. You've been to Cave of I've, I've been never there. been there. It's yeah. awesome. You gotta see it. The Brigham family had been living on the land above the Cave of the Mounds for more than a century before the cave was discovered. Now a national natural landmark, the Natural Limestone Cave is full of awe-inspiring geologic formations, crystals from stalactites and stalagmites to gemstones and geodes. This subterranean spectacle is surely a sight to see, and thanks to daily tours offered, it's now easy to explore. I was there with Shirley. You said surely a sight to see. I was there with my mom. Her name is Shirley. 
Just wanted to throw that out there. Sanatorium Hill. <laughs> Lakeview Sanatorium, a former tuberculosis treatment center, might have shut down in the 1960s, but tales of spooky happenings are still surfacing decades later. Located on the property that is now Lake Hill View Park, people say the building, the hill it's situated on, known as Sanatorium Hill, and the surrounding woods are all hotbeds for paranormal activity. Ghost sightings, hot and cold spots, and strange lights have been reported. As word of the otherworldly happening spread, the site became popular among paranormal investigators, including YouTuber Gregor Wilkie, who shared a video titled Ghost Caught on Tape at Sanatorium Hill, Madison, Wisconsin, in which you can see a ghost-like figure. And the last one on here, drumroll please, <laughs> Summerwind Mansion. Hey, I've heard of that Land place. Of Lakes, which we have talked about a lot on Second this episode. Show. Tales of the strange happenings at Summerwind Mansion date all the way back to its construction, with workers sharing stories of cars starting on their own or inexplicably catching on fire. The property has changed in ownership many times since it was built in 1914, with each new family experiencing its own set of scares. Many reported seeing apparitions and hearing disembodied voices, while others witnessed lights flickering on and off and windows opening and closing on their own. Once a grand mansion... The property is now mostly in ruins thanks to a fire believed to have started when the building was struck by lightning. Now, Mickey and I were just there this past summer, right? In July, we were there. We did an investigate. Well, we, it was a group investigation. And we were, this is probably the right time to talk about this. We were always, we, we had mentioned several times we're going to do an episode on the investigation that we did. It was a group investigation. And I think... You know, Meaning as, more than just you, me, your wife, and there Jim. were thirty of us there, maybe yeah, there or was more a, than that, including Craig Nearing. Right, we did this with Fox Alley Ghost Hunters. Besides our friends, like you said, your wife and Jim Cooper. Yeah, it was. It, so it was the last investigation that we did with Jim, who has passed on since then, very unexpectedly. Um, Unfortunately, which kind of made doing an episode about it a little awkward for us, I think. And that's one of the reasons we haven't done it. But also, you know, when you're doing group investigations like that, it, first of all, the experience was amazing. It was awesome. We would, we'd, it may be, it was probably the last public investigation that's going to be offered there because the land is for sale. The property is for sale and, and it's really up in limbo what's going to happen with it. Right. Um, but, you know, the, you, you run into a lot of challenges when you're in that kind of a setting. And not just the mosquitoes. That is true. <laughs> other other challenges. There's lots of people around. Right. So, you know, you can do these these public hunts, these these group, you know, paranormal hunts, ghost hunts, what you want to call them. But you're really there for the experience. And well, to, and a lot of people who weren't, because I'm not trying to say I'm experienced, but a lot of people there just wanted to see someone they've heard of it. Right. They've, they don't necessarily have ghost hunting experience, but they don't necessarily understand the etiquette or the protocol that goes along with it. So, and I mean, and you're just dealing with a bunch of people. So you, you kind of have background noise, unfortunately. And that's, you know, just when there's more people involved, that's what's going to happen. Right. And, and we, I don't mean to say we didn't get anything there in terms of evidence. I think we did. And I think the stuff that we got there was really quite compelling um, in terms of tripwire oh, evidence yeah. and things like that. Even I with mean, the group around, yes, that was really. It was really quite striking. Yeah, it was. It was great, and that was one of my first experiences. I thought it was amazing. And it's really hard to portray that in an audio-only podcast, you know. So it's not we didn't have a lot of evidence that we can play you in this format that would do anything for you. And right, is, you're not going to get as much, much as we did we for done. being there. But we've we've talked about it a lot since then. We've talked about our experience there. Uh, like Mickey said, him and I, my wife Vicky, 
and Jim Cooper went there. It was the last uh, investigation that we were able to do with Jim, and it was, which which actually turns out pretty cool. You know, Joe and Jim passed on unexpectedly. That's when I got to know Jim later. the best. I, I stayed in a room with him. Yeah, it's too bad that so, that was the last time of significance. So it's something that we, you know, he, he and I had talked about for years, you know, maybe getting up there and doing and. And that opportunity presented itself, and so we jumped on it. And again, we thank Craig Nearing and, and Fox Valley Ghost Hunters for presenting it. And it was a, it was a great experience. The evidence we got there, in terms of personal experiences, was quite striking. But the reason we haven't presented it to you in an audio-only podcast is because we haven't quite figured out the way to do that in a way that is beneficial to you the listener. So as we get the YouTube channel running, as we get Patreon running, you know, we can probably figure out a better way to do that. But, you know, until then, Summer Wind will have to live in our memory. I'm just glad Jim got to do it before he left. 100%. Now in Brown County, Green Bay area, town of Lawrence to be specific, There's a small state park that often gets overlooked. It's called Lost Dauphin Park. Dauphin, D-A-U-P-H-I-N. It's only 19 acres, and although it offers wonderful views of the Fox River, um, it'll never be crowded. There's not lines of cars pouring in and out of the parking lots, right, which we often see as state parks. And it's really not even officially listed as a state park anymore. Although the state still owns the land, it's designated as a state-owned roadside park. So it's called Lost Dolphin Park instead of Lost Dolphin State Park. But it was designated a state park in 1947, but it's since been taken off. It runs along Lost Dolphin Road. Now in the park, there's a small playground few picnic tables and some great walking trails. I've been there numerous times. It is a great place to Me too. I, I to went hike. to school in Green Bay, yeah. But there are also remains of an old flagstone foundation from a house that used to be on the property. And this was the home of Eliezer Williams. Now, who was Eliezer Williams? Well, in a Green Bay Press-Gazette article from 1946, when the park was being donated to the state, the article reads, quote, Mr. Titus, president of the Wisconsin Historical Society, expresses approval of the generous public spirit of Lee Gillespie of Green Bay, who has offered to transfer to state ownership the cottage on the bank of the Fox River where once lived the legendary Eliezer Williams, the lost dolphin of France. Now, Eliezer Williams is a name that not many people know today, at least outside of historical circles. You know, historians know the name, obviously. But 100 years ago, 150 years ago, everybody in this area knew the name Eliezer Williams, and they all had very different opinions about him. Now, I do write a little bit about him in my book, Lost Fox Cities, because of the connection that he had a pretty big connection, really, to the Fox Cities um, and the Appleton area, and we'll go into that a little later. But really, to understand Eliezer Williams' story, or at least the story he told, we have to go all the way back to the 18th century. 18th, In France. Yeah, 18th century France into the French Revolution. Now, you're probably asking, what the hell does the French Revolution and, uh, you know, King Louis XVI have to do with with Badger Bazaar? With German-based Wisconsin? (laughs) Yeah. Buckle up. So now, the the French Revolution, 
And if you've studied this at all, if you've read about the French Revolution, um, if you researched it, it ever, it is frightening. Man, do they know how to end stuff. It is The guillotine was invented there. Put it that way. I mean, it was literally mob rule. Yeah. Overrunning I mean, the monarchy. And if I mean, we don't agree with you, you die and we cut your head off. It was crazy shit that was going on in 18th century France. Now we go back to 1770 to a 14-year-old Austrian archduchess, Maria Antonia. So she's the daughter of the emperor of Austria, Franz I. And Maria Antonia, she leaves home at 14 to go meet her future husband, Louis Auguste, who is the current Dauphin of France. Dauphin is the correct pronunciation oui. of that, right? Tout français, but, très bien. But we don't, we're Americans, right? We don't say Dauphin. Je just speak the French pretty good. We say we? Dauphin. That's yeah, what we do. We're American. American. <laughs> so Louis Auguste is the current Dauphin of France, which means he's the heir apparent. He's the king in waiting, right? His grandfather. Actually, it, not surprisingly, it does translate to Dauphin. It does, yes. It was yeah. a symbol, I believe, right. wasn't it? Of, so I don't under, I, I, I looked it up. I couldn't find why that became the term they used for the upcoming king or the yeah. next to be king, but it means dolphin as you would think it would. So that's the French language for you. Now, Louis, that's why they think they're so much better than we are. Because there's so much logic behind it. They have a lot of good food. They do. Know, French fries. And, oh, I love, bread. I've been to France uh, two or three times. It's, it's pretty great, but don't try to speak French to them because they just look at you like you're stupid if you're from America. And don't piss off the crown. Right. <laughs> right. Now, Louis Auguste's grandfather was the current king. He was King Louis XV. And because his own, his own father died of tuberculosis at 36. So he is... Which is the, a common theme, you'll find out. He is the king-in-waiting. And he's 15 years old, right? Another now, common theme. Now, this is an arranged marriage, right? The king-in-waiting, Louis Auguste, he's 15 years old, and he's going to marry the youngest daughter of the emperor of Austria. Now, French and Austria were mortal enemies, right? They fought numerous wars against each other in their history, but they're kind of attempting to uh, bury the hatchet a little like bit. Like a Romeo and Juliet situation yeah. almost. So, you know, they, they figure... The Capulets and the Montagues. One way to do this is for the emperor's youngest daughter to become queen and marry the 15-year-old future king of France. So even though she's living a life of luxury, right, uh, Maria Antonio's life is preordained. And that's, think about these ages. I mean, yeah. things are different now. These that's are the feudal system. Con, right, and they're considered adults at that point, and she's going to start you know, producing offspring because that's just how things were back then. try to, at least. Right. right. Well, yeah, right. So she begins her trip in this, this this royal caravan, right, that comes and picks her up from Vienna. And she leaves home. And this is the first time she's ever left home, right? She's 14. She's All she knows is is the life that she's led till and, then. And she's, a, a, a privileged life yes. to, to that point. And, yeah, and now she's traveling to places where people may not know who the hell she is even. And right when they cross into France, they have a ceremony and they strip her of her Austrian citizenship, and they make her a citizen of France, and they change her name from Maria Antonia to Marie Antoinette. Ever heard of her? So now Louis meets her on the way, right? She's gone for about 20 days until Louis meets her while she's on her way, and he's very awkward and shy. These people didn't have great social instincts. No. <laughs> they weren't taught how to socialize. Right. But they didn't have to. 
Now, after a few days together, 23 in total since she left her home, and just, you know, a couple, three days, I think, since she met Louie for the first time, they make their way to their destination, which is their new home, which is the Palace of Versailles. Now, Versailles. I've been there. You've been to Versailles. Yeah, so you talk about all the places in Wisconsin. It's amazing. Everything you picture as far as, you know, gratuitous and, and over extreme and luxurious, of course. it's it, And it's it takes up city blocks. It's it's amazing and beautiful and majestic. I mean, it's everything you expect it to be, and you don't get to see all of it. But even just standing outside, it's exactly what you expect. It's, it's pretty amazing. Now, Versailles was actually built as a fishing lodge. And if, it's but, more impressive but, than that. Bigger, I'm just going to throw it, that out Is it out bigger there. than that now? Right, yeah. It's not even so, next to water, So it's, it's built as a fishing lodge in 1523, but it's transformed eventually into the royal palace by Louis Fourteenth. So now th- there is a book that we get um, a lot of our sourcing from today. It's called The Lost King of France, A True Story of Revolution, Revenge, and DNA by Deborah Cadbury. And I want to read, so she writes in a, in a passage in the book here, she says, quote, Versailles gave off an immediate impression of classical grandeur, ionic columns, arched windows, and balustrades receding into the distance as far as the eye could see. The ornamental facade of the main block alone in brick and honey colored stone stretch over one third of a mile. This was the administrative center of Europe's most powerful state, nothing less than a town for up to 10,000 people. 10,000 people lived on the campus of Versailles. The royal it's a family, small town. The royal family and their entourage, several thousand courtiers and their servants, the king's household troops, Swiss guards, musketeers, and countless other staff and visitors. Marie Antoinette was taken to the ground floor apartments where her ladies-in-waiting were there to prepare her for her wedding. So the day that they arrive is the day they're getting married. Again, they're 14 and 15 years old. Sure. The day they arrive is the, is the day they're getting married. But nothing was to prepare the princess for the lavishness of the palace. Then there were the endless mirrored panels of the vast Galerie de Glaces, where courtiers were assembling to greet her. This famous Hall of Mirrors was the talk of Europe, with its 400,000 reflected candles and beyond, the tall western windows, the perfect view, with its enchanted blue distance held forever in mirrors, gold, and more gold, the sparkle of diamonds, and the finest crystal. It could not fail to seduce the senses and beguile the emperor's daughter as to her assured prospects at Versailles. So she meets him and she's like, I don't know about this loser. And then they get to Versailles and she's like, oh, oh fuck yeah. Royalty knows what it's doing. Who do you want me to marry? Yeah. All right. I, he's He looks like a toad with, with hair coming out of his eyeballs. That's fine. Okay. Royalty knows how to do it. Everything is over the top and... And Versailles is no different. So they get married. By the way, those two, those two years of French, they really help your accent. You kind of know how to do Thank that. Thank you, man. Oh, pretentious. It was, oui, oui. <laughs> it was three years. Oh, buddy. I'm sorry. It was three. So all through junior high then. And it made it. <laughs> now, you got to do the weird laugh, too. So they get married that night, right? Again, 14, 15 years old. Afterward, following customary French etiquette, the bride and groom were prepared for bed in a very public ritual where the king himself gave the nightshirt to his grandson. That's weird. Yeah, I'm get, I just got the willies. Yet for all the weeks of imposing preparation and anticipation of this happy moment, when the sheets were checked in the morning, 
There was no evidence that the marriage had been consummated. <laughs> now this is—they're checking the fucking sheets they're in the morning. They're seeing if the fifteen and sixteen-year-old can can do each other and did it right, and if there's but, evidence. But this left is back. this is what anybody's worried about: is is are, are you going to have an error now? I mean, I remember right? just reproduction. It's about it's about the reproduction. You you better have some offspring because that's the next dauphin, as so, we said. They did Things have different in their world. They did have a, a problem with with intimacy, and it, it mostly from his part. No, it it really did hamper the relationship in the first few years of their marriage because again, the pressure is on them right. to have a son. You know, that's that's got to be pretty emasculating. As, well, and as there's eagles involved here. This is royalty we're talking about. I mean, these are things that everyday common folk deal with as far as you know, just fragile eagles and things like that when it comes to performance. But this is royalty. Yeah. And and heritage that's supposed to be, you know, d- dependent upon these things. So, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. It's it's ridiculous if you actually put your mind into it. So they, they think, you know, but at the same time, they think they have time. They're 14, 15 years You would old, think, right? yeah. They're teenagers. And then, of course, four years later, the grandfather, King Louis the fifteenth suddenly dies of smallpox. And now Louis and Marie Antoinette are now king and queen of one of the most powerful countries in Europe at 19 and 18 years old. And France owned a lot of, you know, they, they owned a lot of land in different parts of the world. So now the, the natives are, are growing restless, right? Because now they're king and queen and there's still no heir, even though they're only 18 and 19 years old. But you need a dauphin. You need a dauphin, right? Otherwise yeah. people start freaking out. So what's the problem now, right? Now Marie Antoinette was not shy and withdrawn like her husband. Right, she liked to cavort around a little bit. She liked to flaunt, but she was very bothered by the fact that she Louis, was outgoing. She was, you know, not afraid to represent her position, as as has come to be expected in, in somebody of royalty or you know of this upper position. And she she took full advantage of it, right? Right. Um, but she just still, filling the role, doing doing what she was expected to do. She was very bothered by the fact that Louis seemed really standoffish and cold to her. But apparently, you know, as the pressure's mounting because the public is now starting to talk, what's wrong with Louis? Why aren't they, you know, having an heir? She, apparently she told her brother everything. Apparently these, these two had pretty intimate conversations and the brother spilled. Saying that it wasn't her fault that they weren't reproducing as they were expected to. So what the brother says of this conversation, he says, quote, in the conjugal bed, here is the secret. He, in regards to Louis, he has excellent erections, inserts his organ, remains there without stirring for perhaps two minutes, and then withdraws without ever discharging, and, still erect, he bids his wife good night. Wow. It is incomprehensible, he said. He ought to be whipped to make him ejaculate as one whips a donkey. Marie Antoinette wrote that she is not amorously inclined, and together they are, quote, a couple of awkward duffers. He puts... Okay. A couple of awkward I, did, I never thought we'd get this graphic. He puts it in. Leaves it there without... Leaves it there. Two minutes. No movement or anything. I can't believe she wasn't more enamored by that. I, that. No, I will say something in, in his in his defense here. Um, He's a man. There's a lot of pressure on us. Exactly. Stress can... Especially when you're a king or soon-to-be king. Stress can affect that. Yeah, it does. Women don't understand that. It's not about them. Sometimes it's just things that are going on in our own minds and lives. But King Louis here had a a massive job on hand here. Most pressing... I'm glad you said job. ...was to get France's 
finances in order as they were in tremendous debt from all of the wars that his predecessors fought over the generations. France was in wars for centuries leading Much like up. like most of Europe. Now, the other driver of the debt was the taxation system in France, which was baked into the feudal system. Now, you, they basically had three classes. They called them estates, but they were three classes of population. Nobility, clergy, and commoners. Well, nobility and clergy, obviously the most wealthy, were largely exempt from taxes, leaving almost the entire tax burden on the commoners. Sound familiar? Now, because this has been going on for generations, again, centuries, uh, it's not easy to get out of that. Now, th this was an absolute monarchy, so he, the king had virtual power to do uh, anything, but... The when you say monarchy, you basically mean dictatorship, right? Maybe sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, lines. an absolute monarchy means that he, what he says goes, but there's he still, the one there's rule. still politics involved. Right. And there's, there's still other people who have an influence and have say in what, in the decisions that are made. There's still the, the nobility and the clergy aren't just going to relinquish their position without a fight. Right. So politically, you can't just raise taxes on them. They will fight back at you. Right. You can't raise taxes on the commoners because they're already poor. Otherwise, you have absolute anarchy where just exactly. the, the, the commoners just rise up and just start killing. And, and well, <laughs> yeah, keep, keep listening. Yeah, it, now, it'll happen. The commoners already see their income dropping and their debt rising. So all you can do as a king is you just keep borrowing money and you keep going further into debt. Cause that anything, sounds familiar too. Exactly, right. Anything you do as a king or maybe a U.S. president is you're always <laughs> pissing Not somebody maybe. off. Somebody's always pissed off. Right. Now, the commoners have no money, and whatever they do to make money is being taken from them in taxes. But they see Versailles, right? They see how the nobility is living. They see how the clergy is living, and they the pay... The riches are coming from somewhere. They pay nothing. So division is rising. Why are you so much better off than we right. are? Not only is division rising, but you also have growing distrust in this foreign queen, Right? She's rebuked some of the she's traditional. She's not even French, right? <laughs> she's rebuked some of the traditional traditional acts as queen, as you know, the the public daily ceremonies that they had to do every day. She didn't want to do that. There were dinner ceremonies you had to have with public people every day. She didn't want to do that. She was twenty years old, right? Right. Every but day, to some degree, you know, to contradict what I said before, she is in a position where she needs to try to, yes, you know, represent all three estates, as we call them. She she thinks she's above certain things, and that's not going to go well for the estates so underneath. She didn't want to adhere to some of these traditional right. values that she the queen thought did. she was above certain people, and they did not appreciate. So it. the public is getting turned off by that. She would get her friends' official positions at Versailles when King Louis was trying to draw back expenditures on that. She would spend a lot of money on jewelry, on clothes, on hairdressers. She knew how to live the life. Now, King Louis did not have it in him to kind of draw her back. You know, he, they did, for all their intimacy problems, they did kind of grow into each other, right? There was a mutual respect there. There was, you know, a love there, I think, you know, looking into this. I think there was, and he didn't... I think they protected each other as much as they could. He didn't want to draw her back. He was a little probably intimidated by her, and the public sees all this, and she's still an Austrian, right? Many French had relatives killed by Austrians. She's spending their money. She's displaying contempt 
for their customs. She's cavorting around to masquerades and to the opera. All of this without her husband, by the way, who was not that kind of guy. He was not that outgoing guy. Which is why he'd be intimidated by her because she she had a strong, big personality and she was not afraid to right. put it out in the public. So a, a person who's a little more introverted and shy is going to be intimidated by that. But it didn't stop her Whether from he's doing the this. king or not. So she's still doing these things with her friends. She's living her life like a socialite. Strong you know, woman. Kind of like she's Paris Hilton. Yeah. And again, she's 22, 23 years old at this time. But a little bit of privilege no, from the get-go. No question. Now, the press would portray her horribly. They did not like her. And they would portray her and as... We're, we're not painting the prettiest of pictures either. No. They, they would portray her as an adulteress. But, you know, they would publish these really vile and crass cartoons and pamphlets you know, degrading her character as some sex fiend attending orgies, all of it untrue, but this right. stuck. And it stuck even today. You know, when you think of Marie Antoinette, these are the kinds of things that she's portrayed as in movies and things, as this cavorting, you know, uh, queen that was just... See, I think over time, though, she's become looked upon as a strong woman, not necessarily as as doing things that people look down upon. I think she... In this day and age, I don't. I don't think that the image of her is considered like extramarital or anything like that. I was just, she's a woman. She's going to do what she wants. And again, she didn't go outside the marriage as far as sexual, you know, experiences and all that stuff. But she just wasn't afraid to be who she was, and she wasn't afraid to take advantage of her situation, whether that's good or bad. So, but I think as time has gone on, her. The, the persona that she's that people understand about her, I think it's probably more positive than negative. But back then, that was not the case. That back then, the public turned on her, and it was it was a horrible PR kind of propaganda machine that was against her. And even her mother in Austria would write to her saying, "You know what? You need to settle down here a little bit." Reel it in, right. and and she did. She would settle down when she was aware of herself. I believe finally on December in December of seventeen seventy eight. Marie Antoinette gives birth to their first child, a daughter, Marie Therese. December 19, 1778. Marie Therese Charlotte was oldest child. Her arrival was celebrated and dispelled rumors of the infertility or incompetence in the royal bedroom after eight years of marriage. Just to make that clear, eight years, everybody's waiting. These are children at the time, but eight years later, everybody's wondering what's going on and this birth dispelled that, thank God, to everyone. So the public, happy that they're procreating, I guess, but disappointed that it was not a male. But even then, later on, they were happy because in 1781, she became pregnant again and had the birth of their first son. October 22nd, 1781, as Scott said. Louis-Joseph. Xavier Francois. He immediately became the Dauphin of France. As a second child and first son. And put everybody's mind at ease that they could not, you know, create Make an stuff happen. All right. So now all is well in the royal family, right? But nationally and politically, it's a nightmare. Another expenditure that was wearing down the debt was our revolution, the American Revolution at the time. France wanted nothing more than to see England defeated here. In the New World. And they wound up sending over 8,000 troops and a whole lot of supplies over to help us win that war. And obviously the French were paramount in us winning 
the revolution. The Marquis de Lafayette obviously was instrumental for George Washington as a military officer winning the revolution. So we're a big ally when we needed them. Yes. Until now they they achieved victory, right? They we achieved victory over here, which was also a victory for them because England got their asses handed to them. And that's why they helped us. Right. But it cost them a lot of money, and it cost them a lot of money they didn't have. And not only that, but the 8,000 men that came over here fighting went back to France. And now they're thinking... We just watched a bunch of farmers organize and take down the most powerful army in the world. So King Louis and his floozy queen there better shape up. What really exacerbated things was there was pretty much a famine going on in France at the time. Horrible harvests have led to a grain shortage, which have led to ridiculously high prices, which most couldn't even afford to feed their families now, literally. Like the commoners, are, they're making so little money, and they're paying so much in taxes, they don't have anything left over. So the government becomes the focus of the country's ire, and the foreign, big-spending, sexually deviant queen was their easy target, and the propaganda machine against her was relentless. Now, during this time, though, she devotes her time to motherhood. And the family goes through some turmoil. So another son is born, Louis Charles, and also another daughter, Sophia, who died in infancy. Born July 9th, 1786, Sophie Helene Beatrice was youngest child. She was born on June 19th, 1787. She died of tuberculosis before the age of one. On June 4th, 1789... Louis Joseph also died from t- tuberculosis at age seven. Thus, Louis Charles VII became the reigning dolphin at age four. Louis XVI also had 16 illegitimate children verified. Some acknowledged legitimizing them, but not all. So, dad was doing some work elsewhere, just like mom was accused of. So, now, isn't that funny, though? Like, he obviously could get busy with other He's people. He's the guy, though. Right, and this was very normal. Right. In monarchies. So, King, King England, if you ever watched I mean, History it, of the World. It was kind of normal for the king's mistresses to dine with their family. So it's not it's really weird to us. But right? the kings this would spread their would seed do. because yeah. they were elite. And yet the queen was not allowed to do so because be- kings became really jealous. So now again, they've had four children together. Two of them are now gone. And the youngest child, Louis Charles is the new dauphin. Now, eventually, there is an uprising. And commoners and clergy form what they call the National Assembly in seven, May of 1789 and created a military led by the Marquis de Lafayette. And on June 14th, they stormed the Bastille, which was a political prison and, and really the symbol of royal power to get the political prisoners out of the prison, although there was only seven of them. And the Bastille was actually slated to be torn down uh, soon after this. Now this was real. Revolutionary War was begin. So now storming the Bastille, people know that this is happening now. The commoners have risen up. Along with the rest of Europe, they began favoring the overthrow of absolute monarchy. So now several months later, 
after they storm the Bastille, a mob storms Versailles and actually break into the home of the royal family. And th- these are mainly women. They're, they're women with like pitchforks and knives and broom handles. These are pissed off commoner women who storm Versailles, where the royal family lives. Remember, this is a campus with 10,000-ish people. And this is back there? when women weren't necessarily considered as equals, you know. And they have Still pitch- back then, no matter where we were in the world. They have pitchforks, they have knives, they have broom handles, and they bust into Versailles, where the royal family lives, and they're looking to murder the royal family. <laughs> well, you're not carrying those things if you're not trying to I mean, to think of this is like somebody, like a mob running to the White House and busting inside and trying to kill the president and his family. Imagine That's that in today's in age, in this today's age, oh my God. And they do kill, they kill numerous guards, and the king, now King Louis would not turn guns on them because he knew, he knows he's in trouble already, so he knows if he gets arrested, they're going to charge him with firing upon his own people when he's a dead man. Especially women. So he did not turn guns on them. And the accounts of this, you can read the accounts of people that went through this. It is frightening. Like the king and the queen are like holed up in there in a a room, you know, behind closet doors and shit. So... And it only gets worse. Now, King Louis, Marie Antoinette, Louis Charles, and Marie Therese, they're eventually imprisoned. And they're imprisoned at an old stone tower which dates back to the Knights Templar, called the Temple. They were taken from the Palace of Versailles, and they were placed in the Tuileries Palace in Paris. For the next several years, he still technically reigned an uncertain position of constitutional monarch. The revolution became more militant and radical. In 1791, their lives became even more in danger, and he attempted they attempted to flee royalist territory and seek protection of Austria, which was her country of origin. The king was recognized, they were caught, and they were returned to Paris, where they remained until their official arrest on August 13, 1792. From then on, they were kept in the Tower Prison of Square du Temple. So now they're, they're in this medieval temple prison. The family is in separate cells, which obviously was mortifying for them. Marie Antoinette can't see her kids. Her whole family is separated, isolated. They can't see their parents. They do allow them periodically to see each other. You know, they're still technically... See each other from a distance. They're still technically king and queen, you know. So, I mean, they, they do... They're, Constitutional monarch, as I said. They're, they're in, you know, I don't, I don't know if they're in a cell like you and I think they're in a cell. They're in rooms. They're in right. separate rooms. It's more white they, collar than blue collar. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's still in a stone temple. Right, so it's, and things are a different You know, it's then. not great. They're imprisoned, but they do, even, you know, periodically they get to... to be with each other, but eventually they are ripped away from each other and they're separated fully. And despite all the opinions of Marie Antoinette, she was a good mother. She loved her children. She was a doting mother. So she she would steal any chance she could to, to just even see her children, to see if they were all right and how much they were suffering because she cared. This was devastating to this family, right? I mean, She's this still was a good mother. Family. So King Louis the Sixteenth obviously goes to trial. It's a sham trial, as you would expect. And he gets sentenced to death. And, you know, they are allowed to have one last meeting together the night before he's executed by guillotine. In December of 1792, now called Citizen Louis Capet, he was tried after a few weeks and found guilty on 33 charges of high treason and sentenced to death. On January 21st, 1793, he was publicly executed via the guillotine. From there on, 
Louis Charles would be considered the king of France. So now, the, the night before, again, the family is allowed to be together. He, uh, his last words to them basically were to not try and avenge his death because he knew, basically he's saying, just do what they want you to do and try to, try to stay alive and, you know, don't do anything to avenge what they're going to do to me. When he is guillotined, as Mickey said, Louis Charles is the new king of France at eight years old. Sure. And, and he is recognized throughout many countries in the world, right? England, Austria, Russia, and even the United States, they do recognize him as King Louis the 17th. Even though the U.S. was helping France with their revolution, uh, they still recognize the boy king as the, uh, you know, the, the new monarch of France at eight years old. Now, they wanted him dead, right? He is the new king. They don't want any possibility that he could, at some point, regain the monarchy and try to, like his dad said, exact revenge on them. They wanted to kill him, but they couldn't. The radicals we're talking about. The revolutionaries, right. Right. Because he's eight- Not everybody, he's but just eight- the people in France who were tired of the monarchy. He's an eight-year-old boy. You know, you're gonna ex- you're gonna guillotine an eight year old boy. What's they, the rest they didn't of the world trust gonna the say? Dad. What what? How are they gonna trust the eighteen year old offspring? So eight year old offspring. Sorry. Now now Louis, he's he, right. He's eight years old. The four the first four years of his life, he lived in, in a, a lap of luxury, right? And now he's living in a prison, and his father is guillotine, and he doesn't know what the hell's going on. Eight years old. Think of this. They can't kill him, so they decide the young king would be quote reeducated. He had an attendant in his prison cell by the name of Antoine Simon. He was a cobbler, and he's known throughout history as Simon the Shoemaker. Now, he was in charge of... And a revolutionary. You know, quote-unquote tutoring uh, little Louis here, and he was not a nice man. So there is a lot of evidence, and there are records of this temple. They did keep documents, and they did keep records. That says that the boy king was repeatedly beaten, until he would repeat things that they told him about his family. He was taught to hate his mother. He was taught to hate his father. He was told all the evil things that, uh, you know, the monarchy was doing in the world, and they would beat him until he would repeat these things. There may have been political agenda reasons for that. This is how they're trying to, quote, re-educate him, right? There's evidence that he was raped. He was repeatedly given alcohol to get drunk, eight years old. They'd bring in prostitutes to give him syphilis, Right, they didn't want to kill him, but if he died in captivity, well, maybe that's then, the break. Then it wasn't their fault. Disgusting. So, they also forced him to say that his mother committed acts of incest with him. And now, when all this is going on, Marie Antoinette has her trial. She's now known as the Widow Capet. Soon to be tried herself, as Scott mentioned. Also, Louis Charles was allegedly manipulated into testifying against her. He was forced to accuse her of molestation and incest. While the accusations were instrumental in securing the conviction and execution, modern historians find no basis to these claims. So he's forced to say in trial, in his mother's own trial, that she sexually abused him and molested him. And of course... Not like she had a chance to begin with. <laughs> when would that have happened? But she's uh, convicted of treason. After only two days, 
Former Queen Marie Antoinette found guilty of these charges and charges of high treason and sentenced to death. On October 16, 1793, she was publicly executed via the guillotine, just as her husband was. She's brought to the guillotine. She's emaciated. Her hair is gray. She looks nice like she's... Nice word, emaciated. She looks like she's 70 years old. She's 37. Disgusting. When she dies. And the guillotine, man, they knew how to... Do they, capital punishment. They used it a lot. Yeah, they knew how to do capital punishment, man. Now, not long after this, Antoine Simon is mysteriously relieved of his duty. And after that, records conveniently go missing. Like I said, they, they did keep documents and records in the temple prison. After he's gone, the records go. So from September 5th, 1793 until July 27, 1794, the Committee of Public Safety gained virtual control and exercised dictatorial control over France and the French government. The political body formed during the French Revolution led by Maximilien de Robespierre and responsible for a period that became known as the Reign of Terror. This is what we're talking about. Caused in part by the rivalry between France's two leading political parties, leading to elimination of enemies to the left and right. There was, it was said that at least 300,000 suspects were arrested, 17,000 officially were executed, and it was speculated that 10,000 died in prison without a trial. This is what was called the Reign of Terror. Now, after his mother is executed, the boy is, is locked up in a very small room with bars. This would be much more akin to what we think of as a jail cell, solitary confinement, pretty much. Right. Food would be passed to him through a hole. He becomes seriously ill. He gets sores and tumors all over the all over his body. Scabies. And a doctor is summoned to inspect him. And it's a doctor that he has seen before. It's a doctor that knows him. And soon after that doctor inspects him, that doctor is poisoned. And this is at age 10, the boy is, Louis Charles is at this point. Now the boy dies. Right, apparently of tuberculosis. So we think. On June 8th, 1795, in the Square de Temple prison. Apparently of tuberculosis, he died. I guess it's officially something called prison fever, which is, you know, four years of neglect and beatings and rapings and Harsh being treatment. told that your mother uh, molested you. That's, you know, you can see <laughs> how this Being treated happens. like a big old turd. So he's buried in St. Marguerite Cemetery, which is where many political prisoners are buried. Some claimed he was murdered by the guards in his cell in order to remove dangerous focal point from the monarchist cause. Now, some of this weird stuff did not go unnoticed by people in France, right? First of all, the boy was allowed to go out and take walks. He would, you know, there'd be a courtyard in the temple prison. He was allowed to go out there. And, you know, months before his death, those stopped. Nobody saw the boy. His attendant, Simone... Even people who knew him. His attendant, Antoine Simone, gets shipped out of there, right? He, his, he gets relieved from his post and the doctor winds up dead. So there's questions here of... Now, he was the king, right? So there, there's, always, there's always this notion that somebody, and this is what they were worried about, there was always this notion, because he's the king, that somebody may try and spring him and get him out of there. Because after all, there were several attempts to spring Marie Antoinette out of prison. That didn't work. Everything was foiled. So there was always a thought. They were always worried about that somebody, you know, being a king with a lot of connections to the Austrian Empire, 
that somebody would do something to try to spring him. Now, long, not long after his death was reported, rumors started to fly that just maybe the boy was not dead at all, but he was smuggled out of captivity and was whisked away somewhere, and another you know, dying boy was put in his stead. The body was brought to the morgue and was examined by five people, with all testifying it was Louis Charles XVII. The problem was none of them had ever seen him in reality in person. His sister, Marie-Therese Charlotte, could have identified him, but she was never asked. She was believed then to be the only one of four children to have survived to adulthood. But again, the only person who could have positively identified him for having seen him in person was never asked. And the doctor, who knew him when he was alive and did the last inspection on him when he was alive, wound up dead. Right? So there's always kind of this story on the back burner. You know, maybe, maybe the boy that died wasn't really King Louis. Maybe they did get him out of there. And on June 10th, 1795, his body allegedly was buried before anyone who'd known for sure had a chance to see him in an unmarked grave right outside the prison du Temple. So it's it's the story gets largely forgotten because obviously... <laughs> but obviously France, it's open-ended. France is going through a lot of turbulent There's shit. There's a lot here, of shit right? going on. I mean, they, they have more war... They have the restoration of the monarchy, which comes later. They have Napoleon still on the way, right? There's a lot of shit that's and going Napoleon's on in France here. Part of the equation that uh, you know this kind, this story just kind of goes away for a little bit until 44 years later, when out of nowhere, an Indian missionary in the United States, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, of all places, a missionary named Eliezer Williams drops a bomb. He is Louis Charles, the lost dolphin of France. So let's go over the biographical record of Eliezer Williams here as it is stated, and then we'll go over some of his, his claims. So this is, is so this is what is thought to be known of Eliezer Williams, which there is a lot written about. The Neville Museum in Green Bay, UWGB, uh, the State Historical Society, St. Norbert's, all have a lot of information on Eliezer Williams. So he's not a ghost, right? But his younger days are a little bit up in the air. So what we know of him. So he's born in 1787 or 1788 in Quebec. They don't have a date. They have an approximate year in Mohawk territory in Canada. So the Mohawks are a tribe of the Iroquois, usually referred to as the easternmost tribe of the Iroquois. So he's born into a First Nation community in Canada, which is native. So his father... <laughs> chief Thomas. Uh, ...was Thomas Williams, who was a Mohawk chief, and his mother was Marianne You're Williams. You're not going to try to pronounce this? I'm not, oh, no. Okay, well, that's fine. Uh, his mother Coward. his mother was Marianne, and she was white. So Eliezer is mixed race. His dad was actually mixed race as well. He's born into a very Catholic community. His mother was very devout Catholic. Roman Catholic. So by 1800, he's sent to Massachusetts to get educated. And basically, that means to get educated. He and his brother John. By white people, because they wanted him 
to expand his you, horizons you needed and, and that. be part of the norm. You needed that in that world then. Right. right. If he was going to be something, he needed to be part right. of the normal society or the common society. So this is where he learns to read and write, and he's noticed as a particularly strong orator. So he could very he had very good speaking skills. He was engaging, right? There seemed to be some talent there as a persuader. Uh, which would come in handy for him later. So so he goes to serve in, for the United States in the War of 1812. Uh, we don't really know what he did in the War of 1812. We have his claims for what he did, but none of it has ever been substantiated. He changes his religious affiliation from Catholicism to Episcopalian, and he begins a career as a missionary. So his job is to convert Native Americans, particularly the Oneidas in central New York, to Christianity. Right, And this is where people really begin to start taking note of his successes because the Oneidas in New York were really divided by, between two factions, the Christian party and the pagan party who wanted nothing to do with the Christian party. They didn't want to convert. Um, they had pretty much rejected any and all attempts by other missionaries to Christianize them to this point, which there were a lot. But again, he's fluent in Mohawk. He's, he's, he's a very fluent Mohawk speaker. Williams is able to communicate well with the Oneidas. And with his, you know, skills as an orator, he was able to convince the pagan party to abandon their traditional ways and change their name. Not only did they, did they convert to Christianity, they changed their name from the pagan party to the second Christian party. And during this process, he actually became the first missionary to preach to the tribe without a translator. It was said, however, that his formal education and ability to read and write was somewhat deficient because he couldn't even write his own sermons. Instead, he read from those collected from other Puritan ancestors. But again, as Scott said, at some point, he convinced the pagan party to change ways and rename to the Second Christian Party. So now people outside of the Oneida are starting to notice this, right? The, the successes that he's had in converting this party, the pagan party, who traditionally rebuffed any kind of missionary that would come, but for some reason, they acquiesce to him. I'll come, right? So he gets a reputation for being a leader in that community, especially by white people. Kind of sounds like King James. So, right, this is very, you're right, this is very James Strang-esque. So, you know, pretty much anybody from outside the tribes wanted to t who wanted to talk with the Oneida for whatever reason, they went to Eliezer Williams because he kind of seemed to be a leader in that community. He seems to be somebody that that community trusted. He knew how to communicate in multiple languages, and he was approachable and personable. Now, usually at this time when white people wanted to talk with natives, it usually involved wanting their land. Right. Usually these were state or federal government officials, or they were from land companies or investors, and they all wanted the same thing. What? They wanted That's the, not how people work. They wanted the natives out of there. Right. They wanted the Iroquois, the Oneida, and the Five Nations. I thought the Native Americans were always treated well by any Americans. Relocated what? somewhere else. I'm shocked. So the Secretary of War at the time, John C. Calhoun, very famous name in American history, would later go on to be Vice President under Andrew Jackson. He'd already began to send scouts to the Fox River Valley area of the Michigan Territory, later to become Wisconsin, as a possible place for the natives to move. So obviously they wanted to talk to Eliezer Williams, 
and Williams starts to float the idea to the native tribes, the Oneida, the Stockbridge, the Brother Towns, the Senecas. about 1818. You know, and he's saying, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not a bad idea to, you know, go west. All the pressure would be off you. You'd get all these white people to stop nagging on you about your land. You know, there's a lot of great open land out there. So, you know, way less European people that you got to deal with. So maybe it's not a bad idea. Less white people. Right. And as Scott mentioned, it included the Oneida, the Stockbridge, the Muncie, the Brotherton, and the Seneca of Sandusky, also tribes of Canada, including the people of Equisasne. So finally, about 150 Oneida follow Eliezer Williams to Green Bay. And soon more... In 1821. Soon more would follow. Followed by about 150 Oneidas of the first Christian party, and about 150 Stockbridge. Upon arrival, the delegation bought land on the Fox River from the Menominee and Winnebago tribes near Duck Creek in Green Bay and in Little Chute. He begins to travel so much between New York and Green Bay that he builds a home here, again, in in what is now the town of Lawrence. In 1822, Williams made home on Little Rapids portion of the Fox River known as, quote-unquote, Williams Tract. And it seems like the man who came to teach the natives about Christianity and save their souls actually wound up selling their land right out from under them. So he's he's becoming a, a big success, right? He's, he's doing starting to take over. He's doing what the churches wanted him to do in terms of Christianizing the Indians. He's doing what the federal government and the land companies wanted him to do in terms of getting them out of the way in New York. Obviously they want to develop that land, right? So Eliezer Williams um, is kind of living it up. He's kind of a big success with these people because he's doing their bidding for him. And as Mickey said, when they, when they came to Wisconsin, he was able to negotiate a deal with the Winnebago for a place for the natives to live here. And because of this, now he knows he's going to be staying here quite a bit. He's going to be traveling here from New York uh, quite a bit. He builds a house here and he takes a wife. Williams Tract came with marriage to a student, 14-year-old Madeline Jordan. She was a mixed-blooded Menominee and French daughter of a blacksmith. She took the name Mary Hobart. 14 years old. Yep. Less than half his age. It was a little less frowned upon back then. Now, maybe he fell madly in love with her. Who knows? Maybe he didn't. But the caveat with Miss Jordan here was that she came with 4,800 acres of land. As I mentioned. So now the marriage itself, you know, seemingly t- didn't really mean a whole lot to Mr. to Mr. Williams here. He would spend very little time with uh, Madeline Jordan here. He, he was much more interested in They his, weren't connected as I thought they were? Okay. You no. Know, he, he, um, again, the 4,800 4, acres of land was in his sights there. And as much as love, huh? He pretty much just had to deal with... <laughs> I think you're a cynic. I believe it was love. I'm going to tell myself it was love with with a 14-year-old. Now, they did have three children. Two of them died in infancy, though. Uh, But they did have a son who continued on living here um, for a long time after. Now, some of the natives do begin to question his motives, right? He's spending an awful lot of time traveling between Green Bay and New York. That's not cheap. And what's in it for him, right? Like, he's not Oneida. He's not Stockbridge. So why is he so invested in helping, you know, them move to a, quote, supposed better life, unquote, in Green Bay? They're starting to question his motives as far as representing them as a tribe. Well, it turns out their suspicions were warranted, as Eliezer Williams was not doing this out of the kindness of his heart, but he was all along on the take. 
He was being paid by the feds to travel with the Indians to and from Green Bay and help them settle. And he was also being paid by one of those land companies, the Ogden Land Company, who obviously wanted to develop the land in New York and needed the Indians out of there. So Eliezer Williams was more than happy for the right amount of money to do their bidding for him. Now, not only was he making money from removing the Indians who he was supposed to preach to, uh, he also had a grander plan of his own. He got the idea to create an Indian empire in the West, an Indian confederacy, basically, of which he, Eliezer Williams, would be king. Huh. Sounds familiar. And for a while, this seems to be working for him, right? More natives come to Green Bay on his behest. His empire may soon be coming to fruition, but the natives kind of all seem to catch on. Yeah. They don't tend to be stupid. They see that he seems completely disinterested in their wants and needs as opposed to his own. He starts signing land deals without even consulting them saying that he has the authority to act on their behalf when he never did. And he's not really one of them to begin with, essentially. So now he's just selling land right from out under their feet. And eventually they're done with him. So by 1832, the United is disassociated with him, complaining he neglected them completely. They deem him unwelcome, as they felt he abandoned them, and let officials uh, in the state and federal government know that so the indians told on him basically they told you they told on me they told state and fed fed officials that this guy is full of shit now in response to that in response to the united complaints the episcopal diocese of new york recalled him because he's useless to them now right if they don't trust him they're not going to do what he wants and so he's useless to the church so they take him off the take because they're not you know, listening to him anymore. They're not, he can't do their bidding anymore because the Indians don't trust him anymore. And the Ogden Land Company, which has been paying Williams to persuade the Indians to move west, cut him loose. If the Indians are done with him, then they're done with Eliezer Williams too. He's, he's of no good use to them. So now he has nothing, right? So what, what's he to do? Just give up and, and go be a husband to his wife that he didn't love? Yeah, been such a good husband so far. You know, and I, I mean... I'm not going to say he didn't care about his family, but obviously they weren't priority. He had ulterior motives. So he wanders, right? So another source that a lot of material that we get here is from a wonderful book by Michael Leroy Oberg. It's a recent book. So this is a, a wonderful comprehensive history of, of Eliezer Williams and, you know, a lot of the cons and a lot of the psychiatry behind the cons that he tried to pull. So... Um, if you're interested in that, I implore you to check out the book The Professional Indian by Michael Leroy Oberg. And quote, he spent the years following living the life of a misanthropy, spending but little of his time at Green Bay, but mostly traveling up and down the lakes and between Buffalo and the Atlantic states and cities. He did so on borrowed money or on ill-gotten gains. He lived a life of disarticulation, divorce from any community, an acquaintance of many, but a friend a few. Sounds like a homeless person. He, he right. He wandered. Yeah. So then, if he, he was a nomad, he, essentially. So he's he's at a crossroads, right? His Indian empire is dead. But he's got a family that he's neglecting while well, he's being this nomad. A few years later, by 1839, Eliezer Williams begins making the claim that he is the lost 
dolphin. Oh, that's why. And his captor, Antoine Simon, actually took part in a plot to smuggle the boy king out of the jail cell in the temple, used another sickly child as a stand-in who did die, and that is who the autopsy was conducted on. He was whisked away across the Atlantic and brought to a native family in Canada to be adopted. So now clearly that's, that's quite a claim to make, right? Especially when your family is known. People know who your family was. They know where you came from. Your father was an Iroquois chief. We know who your parents are. We know who your siblings were. But he says, oh, no, no, no. I was adopted. I didn't have any memory of my real childhood for so long. And he claimed to have basically trauma-induced amnesia and brainwashing by his quote-unquote re-education, right? But when I was about 13, I had a swimming accident in a lake. And I hit my head and all those memories started coming back to me. So now he also claims to have a number of scars and marks on his body, uh, which matches the markings consistent of that, which is thought to be true with Louis the 17th. He has scars on his knee from supposedly that are from when he had tuberculosis. He had a half moon scar on his forehead, both consistent with the boy King quote, the varied marks on his body, scars on his knees and scars on his face that corresponded exactly with those known to have been on the body of the dolphin, unquote. Now, he told a story which is corroborated by witnesses. Take that for what you will. He tells a story where one, it says, quote, one night an elderly man was showing Williams a collection of engravings and lithographs of characters from the revolution, from the French Revolution. Williams leafed through the collection, but at the sight of one, He seemed disorientated, confused, frightened all at once. He staggered backward, said something to the effect of, Oh, good God, that face, it haunts me still, and then asked to be excused and staggered from the room. The guests ran to the book, looked at the engraving, and the engraving was that of Antoine Simon, the sadistic tormentor of the imprisoned dolphin. So because of these things, the story starts gaining traction. Right, Most people who know him, like here in Green Bay, don't believe it. They're like, dude, <laughs> right. what are you doing? How'd you get right. here from there? He's not taken too seriously yet. Uh, but there is intrigue, you know, and there, the intrigue is, is really kind of elsewhere. There's enough stuff to believe it, almost like making of a murderer. You, you, you have enough things that convince people that it's true, they start believing it. When you stack it up, you know, you have little things and you stack and stack. And exactly. Stack and, you know, it kind of... Feed can't just be one thing, but if it's many things, people might start believing you. And then in 1853, an article is published in Putnam's Magazine. Putnam's Monthly Magazine of American Literature, Science, and Art. Now, this was a massively popular periodical of the day. So in that magazine, there's an article published called, quote, Have We a Bourbon Among Us? Unquote. And then a book was published the same year called, quote, The Lost Prince, Facts tending to prove the identity of Louis Seventeenth of France and the Reverend Eliezer Williams, missionary among the Indians of North America, unquote. Imagine naming your book that. Now, bourbon. Have I probably we, wouldn't. Have we a bourbon among us? Now, the, the, the king and queen, they're from the bourbon dynasty in France. That's where that word comes from. So it says, have we a bourbon among us basically means have we a French royal among us. Now, both of these, the article and the book, are written by a guy named John Holloway Hansen. 
both advocating that Eliezer Williams is indeed the lost dolphin. And this is when the story blows up. It goes in Putnam's, and now this guy becomes a massive celebrity. Nationwide celebrity. Everyone wants a piece of the lost dolphin, right? Eliezer Williams is the boy king who escaped from prison and is now in America in Green Bay. And he basically goes on tour all over the country. He's speaking all over the East Coast, right? New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut. He's telling the story that, you know, he's basically raising money by going on tour. Obviously, he's making money. And really the story that he has that still today is the one thing that gives people pause a little bit about this is that in 1841, the Prince de Jonvie, the son of the current king of France, so the monarchy by this time, 1841, has been restored in France after the revolution. And the new king, the current king, King Philippe, his son, the Prince de Jonvie, who was also the first cousin of the boy king, Francois d'Orleans, he comes to Green Bay and meets with Eliezer Williams. That is a fact. That happened. While he was on a steamer during a tour of the New World, he was interested in learning about the tribe of Green Bay area, and thus he was introduced to Williams. The fact that this happened is documented. It's real. It's corroborated by the Prince de Jonvie himself. The idea that this happened is not in doubt. What is in doubt is why this happened. Williams claimed that Francois personally sought him out to inform him he was the lost dolphin and presented him with a document to sign. He supposedly attempted to bribe him into abdicating the throne of France with quote-unquote wealth of compensation. Williams claimed he scornfully rejected the bribe saying quote though in poverty and in exile I will not sacrifice my honor unquote. So this the, the first cousin of King Louis the 17th the boy the king what Eliezer Williams says comes to Green Bay to meet him and basically verifies to him what he already knew, that he is the king. But they want him to rescind it. And all he has to do is sign this piece of paper rescinding, uh, you know, your right to the throne. And in doing so, we're going to give you all the money you want. We're going to give you houses in Spain and France. Wealth of compensation. Anything you want. And he refuses. Out of honor, he says he refused. Now, this is Eliezer Williams' perspective. Prince Francois adamantly denies the entire story. Now, there's a contingent of detractors that say, no, this this was purely a chance meeting. And they just happened to be on the same steamer, right? They just they just talked about Indians, and it was during this chance meeting that gave the you know, that gave Eliezer Williams to come up with this this concocted story. There's a couple of problems with that. First, he's been saying this since 1839. This happened in 1841. So it wasn't a chance meeting that gave Eliezer Williams the idea to do this. Couldn't have been. Also, what are the chances... Going on for a couple years. What are the chances of somebody being picked up on a steamer uh, because you're a passenger going somewhere and it just happens to be the same steamer with the freaking son of King of France on it? Right, you're doing a tour and you happen to visit this area, (laughs) Right. Because you want to see the new world, you want to see the country, and this is the area you come to visit. And and, and he's been saying this since 1839, two years before the encounter, and he kept quiet about it for 12 years. This story didn't come out till 1853, and it happened in 1841. Why? If he was so, you know, hell-bent on, on using this to profit off it or to help his story, why didn't he say it right away? Right. 
He says it 12 years later. Now, as Mickey says, the, the Prince de Jonvie hears this. The, the article in, the, in Putnam's was sent to him. He hears this, and at first he denies ever meeting Eliezer Williams. That's not true. We know it is documented fact, and many eyewitnesses know that they met. Then he says, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I vaguely remember meeting him, but I don't remember anything about it because it, you know, it was so unimportant. I don't even remember what was talked about. And then he says, oh, yeah, you know, it was a chance meeting uh, when, he, when he came onto my steamer, and I only remember it because I saw his portrait, and it looked so familiar, but I didn't know his name. But then he, gives a, he, he goes on and, and gives a point-by-point recollection of the conversation they supposedly had. So this, this, the prince, and I'm not saying I believe Eliezer Williams at all, Eliezer Williams has a claim here that happened in 1841, and the prince is all over the place denying it. I had never met him. Well, yeah, I met him, but it wasn't that important. And oh, yeah, I did meet him. It was a chance meeting. I don't even remember his name, but this is all the shit we talked about 12 years ago. Right. No. It doesn't make any sense. So now, again, he's on tour, right? Williams is on tour. He's making a living off this, he's speaking about it. He's sitting for all kinds of official portraits by artists who, you know, lighten his skin a little bit here and there, lighten his hair a little bit here and there, change the shape of his features ever so slightly. So he sits for a portrait. He sits for a, an official portrait by European artist Giuseppe Fagnani, who's an artist who had lived in Europe and had an intimate acquaintance with the families of the Sicilian and the Spanish Bourbons, and a man known in America as the portraitist of the crowned heads and statesmen. So this guy did a lot of portraits of royals in Europe. And he says, quote, The general Bourbonic outline and the physiognomical details which rendered the resemblance to the family striking. He said, quote, The upper part of his face is decidedly of a Bourbon cast, while the mouth and lower part resemble the house of Habsburg. So Fagnani believed that Eliezer Williams could well be the dolphin because he demonstrated so many of the physical markers of the, quote, bourbon race, yeah. unquote. So, so that now, makes sense. So now they also had physicians look at him. He also had physicians, scientists. Uh, there was something called race scientists working at this time who would, uh, you know, analyze him and say what they thought. And this particular doctor who was assigned to look at Eliezer Williams and give his professional opinion, says the following, quote, Dear Sir, you have requested me as a physician living in the immediate vicinity of the St. Regis Indians and in habits of close professional intercourse with them to state my opinion as to the race of the Reverend Eliezer Williams. I beg, therefore, to state briefly that in my opinion, he has no ethnological connection with the St. Regis Indians, nor with any other Indians I have ever known, and that my opinion is based on professional examination of the persons of the Reverend Eliezer Williams and of several Indians, as well as a minute knowledge of the particular characteristics of the Indian race. If Mr. Williams is an Indian, it is in the absence of all those ethnological signs discernible in form, feature, texture of the skin, hair, and other similar tokens well known to the profession, which, as for my observations and information extend, are considered decisive, unquote. So this doctor who looks at Eliezer Williams and who knows, works closely with the Indians, the natives that Eliezer Williams supposedly comes from, this doctor says he is no Indian. 
that he is of European descent. So now we have artists saying that he's a bourbon. We have doctors looking at him saying he's not an Indian. He's a bourbon, right? So now all this does is create more confusion. Right. So now another doctor says, quote, the physical development of Mr. Eliezer Williams is that of a robust European accustomed to exercise, exposure to open air, and indicative of the benefit of a generous diet and a healthy state of the digestive organs. He might readily be pronounced of French blood. There are no traces of the Aboriginal or Indian in him. So again, more doctors saying he's not Indian, he's European. Artists saying he's not Indian, he's European. Now what about his parentage? Because we know who his parents were, right? Remember Thomas and Marianne Williams in Quebec? Well, in baptismal records of his parents, all 11 children are there in the record, right? Eliezer Williams was supposedly the fourth child. All children before and after him are in the baptismal record, except for him. It's blank. So the three children are there, the fourth name is blank, and then the rest of the children are there. Why? So at this point, he, he even tried tricking his mother into signing. He actually did trick his mother into signing an affidavit saying he was adopted. Upon learning his claims of the adoption, denying his own mother, his mother, Marianne Williams, burst into tears, denouncing him as a bad and untruthful man. And he even also issued his manifestos, signing them LD, meaning Louis Dauphin, and made many promises of royal favors to his friends and family at that point. He even denounced his own family, basically making his mother wanting nothing to do with him at that point. So again, because of the... the, the all, all these things that people can point to to disprove what he's saying, right, are all mucked up. The baptismal record, his name's not there. So then he says, well, that's because I'm adopted. But he's even... <laughs> but then his mother says, you're not adopted, you're my kid. Right, right? he's even willing to just denounce his own family and he, to claim this. And he gets what a, his, what a slime bucket. He gets his mother to recant the affidavit that she, she actually signed. signed it because she's so disgusted by him she just wants to be done with it all yeah and there's there's rumors that other other uh forms of this were forged so again it's all confusion and publicized throughout the u.s and france at this point the story became believed by thousands sympathetic journalists all over north america wrote about it producing many well-known publications and now what about his memory right remember he well i would, I, I had no memory until i was 13 because i hit my head on a rock and it all came back to me right how ridiculous does that sound well his indian name is Anwarin Haiki, which means his head has been split that's, is that not evidence that he cracked his head open on a, on you know probably a rock during a swimming accident you know but sounds like it. even with how hard he tries he's doing everything he can to keep this story alive right eventually his popularity and the sensationalism of the claims wore thin and others throughout the world also claimed to be the lost dolphin so it said over over time there was at least a hundred people that wanted to take this claim. And I've got a few different versions of more believable claims. The first one was Rene Hervégo. In 1796, a teenager, jailed as a vagrant in rural France, made the claim, convinced many, including one of Dolphin's former guards at Square de Tempo prison. Eventually, his father appeared and coaxed a confession from him that he was just a swindler. A few years later, he came forward again to renew his claims. This time he sought help from Pope Pius VI and that he acclaimed him King of France, branding his leg as proof. Officially, the counter-argument asked why the Pope would take this precaution when there hadn't previously been any other claims. So, bunk, as 
we figured. The next version was Maturin Bruno. In 1815, supposedly orphaned, a new drunken vagrant showed up in Brittany, France, claiming to be the lost dolphin. He did manage to gather supporters despite his erratic behavior, but eventually... He said this behavior sent him to a mental institution and it was proven that he was not the guy. Another version was Baron de Richemont in 1828 calling himself Henri Ethelbert Louis Hector Hebert claiming himself as a lost dolphin in Paris. Said to have been a petty criminal, he claimed to be smuggled out of the square to temple prison by prison doctor in a basket. Also claimed to be rescued from other prisons. In 1853 he died never having officially proven his claim and basically having not much belief behind him. Another imposter was John James Audubon, a naturalist as an adult. As a child, he was adopted at the same time as Louis Charles XVII, believed to have escaped, so his background was somewhat obscure. Also, he was based on a superficial resemblance, being born the same year and having lived in Paris as a child. However, later shown born in Haiti and was an illegitimate son of a French father, he himself denied any of these claims. And finally, one of the more supposedly believable claims was Carl Willem Nondorf. He was a German clockmaker who supplied several pieces of evidence to support his claim. Mostly eyewitnesses confirmation from people who knew Louis Charles XVII by supposedly answering numerous questions relating to the childhood memories. Based on all this, he gained widespread support. But eventually, he moved to the Netherlands and even convinced their government to recognize him as Louis Seventeenth, even allowing them to, to adopt a royal family name of Bourbon and pass, uh, pass it on to his son. Descendants still supposedly use this name even to this day. Parliamentary deputies supporting the case during the Third Republic in France, they argued for his legitimacy long after his death. On August 10, 1845, he died, and his death certificate and tomb even said Louis Seventeenth. So even after his death, he was still claiming to be the lost dolphin. However, in 1950, one of his bones was exhumed and compared to Marie Antoinette's DNA gotten from a lock of her hair. Also compared to the DNA from hair locks of her two sisters and two living relatives, the DNA didn't match any of them, totally discrediting all of his claims. Also said when first making the claim, he didn't get Dauphin's name right and couldn't even speak a word of French. So basically, this guy was trying to make these claims. His DNA didn't come close to matching, and he couldn't even speak French. So Nondorf is probably known as the most famous, the most right all over the world. There were these imposters, right? And these are just more the including some of the more believable Rhodes. ones. But how many had the first cousin of the boy king come and see them himself? <laughs> there was a reason he was here. We know he was here. He stayed at the Astor House in Green Bay, a hotel. It's documented. He met with Eliezer Williams on the boat, and then they moved for hours and talked to each other at the Astor House in Green Bay, and then they went on a horse ride together and met at some woman's inn uh, for a meal. All of this is documented. All of this has eyewitnesses to it. Meaning even he believed it so the, to some degree. The, the fact that... The, the Prince de Jeanville says that, well, first, I don't, I don't even remember meeting him. And then, well, I guess I kind of vaguely do, but it was no big deal because it, I don't remember it was so unimportant. It doesn't hold water. And the fact that it was a chance meeting doesn't hold water either because Eliezer Williams is making these claims in 1839. That didn't give him the idea. So in my opinion, something took hold in France that gave them pause about Eliezer Williams. Does that mean Eliezer Williams is the lost dolphin? No. No, he wasn't. But, but it caught their attention. Of course, yes. He didn't meet with any of these other 99 other imposters right. throughout the world. There was a reason 
that the Prince de Joinville came here and then gave three different reasons and three different stories of, you know, why it wasn't true. If you, as a royal f member, offer something to somebody and they refuse it, you're going to deny that you ever offered it. So because he denied the story, big deal. You know, I don't know that that holds any water. Yeah, again, that's not proof of uh, anything. Again, I'm, I'm not advocating that Eliezer Williams is a lost off, and he wasn't. But some of the claims that have come through over the years to kind of disprove that he was don't hold water either. So now, you know, as the story fades away, as it fizzles out, as attention goes to all these other imposters throughout there, he's broke, right? The attention goes away from him. He, he goes back on the East Coast for m most of the latter part of his life. And he's trying to raise money by any means necessary, right? He's trying to survive. He's trying to live. So he says he's raising money for churches that would never get built. Says he's raising money for missions that would never happen. And he sees his family once in the last seven years of his life. Once. When he stopped back at the house along the Fox River, quote, for about an hour to pick up papers, unquote. Not a great dude. Didn't care about his family much. Now, while on the East Coast, he winds up borrowing money from a lot of people. <laughs> right? And one of the people he winds up borrowing money from is a wealthy Bostonian named Amos Lawrence. And Eliezer Williams didn't have a lot of means that gave Lawrence any confidence that he could pay him back, right? He didn't have any money. But what he did have, and what Eliezer Williams had a lot of, was land. 4,800 acres that he inherited from his father-in-law. Now, he puts his 4,800 acres up as collateral to Amos Lawrence to borrow money from him. And whenever, when the parameters of the loan had passed, Eliezer Williams was not able to pay it back. And the land here in Wisconsin becomes the property of Amos Lawrence. And one of Amos Lawrence's dreams was always to one day open a university in the West. And when the land was defaulted to him, he sent a contingent of scouts out to Wisconsin to see if it would be suitable for that purpose. And if they could build a college, maybe a city would then sprout up around the college. And while here, the contingent that he sends sees a spot along the Fox River where the river drops 164 feet in just a few miles, creating what they had the foresight in those days to know would be the perfect place to harness water power. And although the spot was technically not on the Williams land, Lawrence bought it anyways. He built his college and called it the Lawrence Institute of Wisconsin, which is later changed to Lawrence University. And the city did indeed sprout up around the college, and they named the city after the family name of Lawrence's wife, Sarah Appleton. Now, it should be noted here that, you know, as... as crazy it might sound, without Eliezer Williams, there is no Lawrence University. Without Lawrence University, there is no Appleton, Wisconsin. You know, so it all, it is all kind of connected. Now, obviously, there would be a city here of some, of some standard, but it wouldn't be called Appleton, and who knows what it would look like. So all of that stuff is, is weirdly connected to each other with this kind of con man, um, virtually founded the civilized Fox cities as we know it. Now, Eliezer Williams can't pay the loan back from Amos Lawrence. Lawrence takes his land, builds a college, creates a city, and Eliezer Williams dies pretty much destitute and alone in 1858. Yeah, he died in Hogansburg, New York, at about the age of 70, in poverty and obscurity, as Scott alluded to. 
He was buried at St. James Cemetery in Hogansburg, New York. In 1947, his remains and tombstone were moved to Holy Apostles Cemetery in Oneida, Wisconsin, near Green Bay. The tombstone indicates that he was a Freemason. His manifestos are located at the Wisconsin Historical Society. His letters are very rare on the market and very valuable. Now, his neglected wife, Madeline, died in 1886 in the home he built along the Fox River. She's buried at Woodlawn Cemetery in Green Bay and was buried in a silk dress once said to be owned by Marie Antoinette. Now, when Eliezer Williams made these claims, a lot of things were sent to him from France, from people who said they have uh, relics from the royal family, and they sent to him, and it's said that his wife was buried in a dress that once belonged to Marie Antoinette. Now, as Mickey said, he is exhumed in 1947 and brought to be buried in Oneida. And during that time, they did analyze his skull, which was said to, quote, likely, unquote, be of Native American descent. But this is in 1947, right? 1947 forensics. We've talked on this show about, you know, forensics that have been done in the 2010s and later, which are wrong. You know, so take the right word. take that um, for what it, it wills. Now, it should be stated that, you know, his story was that he was smuggled out by Antoine Simon, right? That he was smuggled out by Simon, Simon the shoemaker. And remember, he mysteriously left the post, and the doctor who examined him was murdered. And the one person that corroborated this, the person closest to Antoine Simon, who was the boy's nurse and was also Simon's wife. She said the idea of their post, of when they were working with him in the cell, was not to destroy the prince, but to educate him as a, quote, common man, unquote, and take good care of his health. So they had charge of the prince until July of 1795, when they supposedly quit the post, and then they presented him to four commissioners of the commune, four commissioners of the temple prison, who gave them a receipt attesting that Simon and his wife had turned over the boy, quote, the person of the prisoner Capet in good health, unquote. In good health. Capet was the family name, by the way. They never That's used what that. Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI were called after they lost their rule, as I mentioned. So he is, according to Simone's wife, turned over when they quit their post to four commissioners of the jail in good health smuggled inside a papier-mâché horse, according to some testimonies. Their assumption was that he, they figured he'd be much safer if the world believed he was dead. So now, was all of that stuff about him being abused and raped in prison bullshit? Was that a story concocted to make people believe that he was being treated horribly, so when he died in prison, nobody thought about it? Right? That is the story that Eliezer Williams is saying. And this is the story that Antoine Simon's wife seemingly corroborates. And she even made claims that, well, there were actually other claims that said Simon was actually fired and didn't resign, as his wife claimed. But even years later, it was claimed that Louis Charles Seventeenth actually visited Antoine Simon's wife in the hospital to thank her for having rescued him and saved his life essentially so there are many claims over the years that were made with all the rumors that were spread 
amongst this whole story. Right. She lived into uh, old age, and she was often asked about the prince, which she constantly replied, quote, the child is not dead. I contributed to his escape, unquote. Now, Simone, Antoine Simone, the shoemaker, was arrested and guillotined in the Reign of Terror. Why? What'd he do? Well, if he helped rescue the boy, <laughs> right? Right? He was working on behalf of the revolutionaries. He was yeah. in charge of... He was a know, revolutionary, and yeah. yet it sounds like ethics... Mm-hmm. If if the story is true, ethics saw it, and, and he and his wife decided to do what was right by the child, which I will never disagree with. Now she obviously she was spared. Again, he was he was guillotined. She was spared. She lived into old age. There's rumors that she wound up in what you know, kind of like a uh, an asylum, an insane asylum, or whatnot. Who you know, who knows? It's where destitute people would live into old age. And but as far as the France. standards. As poorly as women were treated back then is basically subhuman. On the other hand, when it came to responsibility of their actions, men were held responsible, so they were the ones executed. So as poorly as women were treated, they were not executed necessarily if they weren't in a position of rule. So, you know, she's the one. It sounds like she's the one who made these decisions, and yet she was not the one executed. So as as, as hard as it was to be a woman back then, at least you weren't the one killed for a decision you made that everybody didn't agree with. Now, this would obviously answer how the boy could have survived the trip across the Atlantic. A lot of people believed there's no way that boy coming out of that prison as sickly he was, as he was with tuberculosis and whatnot. And God knows what else, mistreatment in general. Going, would, would make that trip alive, going across the Atlantic and going into Canada. That's a several weeks, if not months long journey. There's no way this kid makes it. Well, that would answer how he could, that he wasn't sick that he was smuggled, or if he was sick, he was, wasn't to the point where, um, you know, he couldn't get help. Now, after the prince supposedly died in prison, he was buried at St. Marguerite Cemetery, where we said earlier that's where political prisoners were often buried. In the 1840s, after the restoration of the crown, they went to, to exhume him. They went to reinter him, uh, basically, with the Bourbon family. And guess what? He wasn't there. There's no body. But they did find a skull at the time in the 1840s, which they said, yes, this is the boy king's skull. So that didn't quell any speculation, obviously, but it quieted some people. But 50 years later, in 1893, they admitted they lied. Nope, wasn't him. His body's never been found, still today. So all this adds to speculation, all the way up to the year... 2000. It's hard to know what the truth is. Tradition said an actual hearts of some of the French kings to be preserved as relics upon their deaths. Thus, the heart of the boy who died in Square de Tempo prison was also preserved. In 1795, when the child first died, Dr. Philippe Jean Peloton performed an autopsy, removed the heart, and allegedly hid it in a handkerchief and brought it to his home, pickled it in alcohol, keeping it for 8 to 10 years. Later, one of his students supposedly stole it from him, and on his deathbed, the student admitted the theft to his wife, who returned it to Peloton. Peloton's wife then sent the heart to the Archbishop of Paris. The heart was placed in a crystal urn, among other preserved hearts, in Basilica's necropolis of the King of France, the burial place of many members of the French royal family. In 1814, the French monarchy restored, and the heart was offered to various royal family members. All were reluctant to accept the relic with such a suspect and 
crazy history. In all confusion, the hearts may have been mixed up. In 1875, finally returned to Paris and placed in a crystal vase at the St. Denis Basilica. On April 19, 2000, after a request from the French Prince of Marnay and Duke of Baffremont, Jacques de Baffremont, two scientists did DNA testing on the heart. Both scientists came to the same indisputable conclusion. Testing showed that the mitochondrial DNA identical to Marie Antoinette and relatives, proving that the boy who died in Square de Temple prison in 1795 was related, most likely, to Louis Charles. So in a Green Bay Press Gazette article on January 9th, 2000, they're talking about the fact that this heart has been found and it's going to be DNA'd uh, for a link, a link between the heart and Louis Charles. And the so the article in the Green Bay Press Gazette says DNA testing might solve mystery of missionary. Eliezer Williams claimed to be son of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. And the article starts out saying, this much is clear and true. A young prince is imprisoned after a bloody revolution. His captors never tell him that his mother and father have been beheaded and that he now is the king of France. <laughs> this much is clear and true. And then he goes off and he says something that's not true. Again, that his captors never tell him that his, father, that his mother and father have been beheaded. And that is not true. They knew the father was beheaded. I have here again from Cadbury. And this is a letter straight from Marie Therese, which is the king's, which is Louis's sister who he was imprisoned with. The one they should have asked, but never did. And she writes later in life. She the said, "The only one who would have known what he looked like." But that's my point: is they don't, yeah. they didn't ask. They never right? did. I said that so, earlier. Yeah, no, right. Quote: He wept for our grief, but not for his death. Speaking directly to Louis Charles, he told him above all to pardon those who were putting him to death. The entire family knew King Louis the Sixteenth was being put to death. They met with him the night before. So this notion that they didn't know the father was beheaded is not true. Now, that's not a big deal. I get that. No, but they did. I, I read everything I read made it sound like they didn't even tell the, the lost often that his dad had died. But my, my point is we've gone through 200 years of shenanigans, right? Of watch, your, watch your fucking language. What's real and what's not? And still in 2000, this much is clear and true, and then he tells you something that's not true. So my point is... Politics has been the same. We have no fucking clue. Right, and, and politicians lie, and people in charge don't always tell the truth because they have an ulterior motive and agenda. Nobody has any clue. We have no idea why he met with the Prince de Jeanville. We have no idea at all. Right. No, he... I mean, we can we have William's side of the story, and we have the Prince de Jeanville's side of the story. They don't match. Okay, who do you believe? Right. Right. I mean, and why? But but why would those two people have met? In the, I mean, those two people coming together is kind of obscure and, and hard to believe to begin with. But the fact that they did just makes your imagination right. go wild. But we don't. We, we're getting two sides of the story, but neither one of them are all that believable. And so the heart, the heart of this boy is supposedly cut out hurriedly during his autopsy, it's stuck in a handkerchief, right? It's lost, it's stolen, it's lost again, it's stolen again, it's, right. it goes through a fire. The heart is all fucked up. But it's thought to be the heart of little Louis Charles. Okay, and the DNA says it's a match. Good. But what that says is that it's a relative of Marie Antoinette. It does not say that this is Louis Charles, the son of of Marie Antoinette. A relative of her and her sisters, which are even more right. distant. So could it be another son? He had a brother that died. Could it be any other relative? Yeah, he had two other relatives who died. His siblings. So, you know, my point is not Eliezer Williams is the lost dolphin. Again, he's not. I have 
We're sure of that. Confidence in that. Anyone who knows him is sure of that. But my the problem that we have is all of the people throughout the years that have proved to you supposedly that he's not, they don't have proof either, right? But they tell you unequivocally, this is why he's not the lost dolphin. But what they're telling you isn't necessarily true either. There's no proof that he is the lost dolphin. He's not the lost dolphin. There's no proof that he's not. Right. There's And there's no proof that they know who he is, even with all the things I just rambled off. I mean, in the world where we live, where it's hard to believe anything anymore, things that are so obscure from such a long time ago are even more hard to believe. I tend to believe... Ah, oh man, I don't know. Again, Eliezer Williams has nothing to do with the lost dolphin. But did, was he smuggled out of prison? I'm tending to believe that he kind of was. Not him, but Prince Charles oh, the, yes, the pr- Yes, right. the, the real prince. Right. You know, there's so much It sure smoke. seems believable to me that, that he was. There's so much smoke there. Now, again, does this heart say that he died in prison? No, it's not proof to me. And also, the forensic evidence in 1947 of Eliezer Williams' skull tells me nothing either. I still believe that the kid was probably rescued. We'll just never know for sure, and that's what's so intriguing about these things. But what I want to wonder is, these people who make these claims... What what do they stand to gain? Are they just bad people trying to take claim of something that isn't theirs, or is there something else going on? Are they do they really think that these claims are going to give them all the luxury and life that these people in the in the positions they were had at the time? Because it's not going to happen. So why do these people even do these things to begin with? Delusions of grandeur, right? I think you're right. I think you know, and I think with some of these people it does become an actual fixed delusion. I think they state they maybe tend to believe it themselves. They convince themselves yeah. over it after so many years. They just start to, they, they tell themselves it's true over and over that maybe it becomes the truth. And thank God I can't even imagine what it's like to want to, wanna, to be so insecure or unhappy with who you are already to want to do that in the first place. And it even just goes to show that people of privilege, people of royalty, at some point even they're treated as subhuman are just treated poorly because unfortunately that's what happens that's what we do to each other and it doesn't matter who you are at some point you're going to be reminded that you're just another animal amen brother <laughs>